0: Good morning, everybody. Let's open up in our Bibles to John chapter 6. We'll be in verses 22 through 41 this morning, uh, theoretically. At this point in uh, Jesus' ministry, massive crowds are following him. And uh, as Jesus is performing miracle after miracle, uh, he is healing the sick. He's giving sight to the blind. I'm sure he's healing lower back pain. I mean, there's a lot of things that are going on there. He's casting out demons. I was just trying to relate, right? It's like, yeah, I'm following that guy. All these miracles are recorded throughout the gospel, and they're recording them so that we would know without a doubt that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. And so in John 6, the crowds have followed Jesus in the north after Jesus has being rejected in the south by the Jews. And so he's now in the region of Galilee, And in the first 15 verses of John 6, Jesus performs the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 as these crowds are following everywhere. It's late at night. He's been teaching them all day. And uh, basically, he he feeds them with five crackers and two fish. He multiplies those. He feeds the 5,000 and probably more because there's women and children there. And John records for us in verses 14 and 15... It says, when the people saw the signs that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is coming to the world, and perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountainside by himself. It's at this point, after Jesus goes ahead and and does this amazing miracle, they're wanting to make him king, that Jesus says, disciples, you got to get out of here, you need to go and so he sends them down to the boat. They leave. Jesus, uh, Mark tells us that they dis- he, Jesus dismisses the crowd somehow. Then he goes up on the mountain to pray. And then as the disciples are making their way across the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum, they run into a windstorm. We were reading about this last week. And the wind started to blow, and they were in the middle of the lake, and uh, they weren't going, getting anywhere. And uh, Jesus comes to them at night, walking on the water. And uh, Our eyewitness John uh, says that they were as soon as they invited him into the boat, they were instantly at the place where they needed to go. And we spoke all about that last week. And so today we pick up in verse 22 of John 6, where it says, On the next day, the crowds that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Verse 23, other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And so these massive crowds following Jesus, they're watching his every move. They see the disciples are gone. They know they only had one boat, and they know that Jesus isn't there. They're searching for him in the morning. He isn't there and so they go out looking for him. They know that he's in Capernaum a lot. They start heading over to the other side with these boats from Tiberias. And so John is, is he points there out uh, there at the end of the verse, he says that they were seeking Jesus. And that's a very important line. You'll want to ask yourself, why were they seeking Jesus? Why are you seeking Jesus? Very important question. Jesus is going to speak to that in a moment. Verse 25, And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? They wanted to know how Jesus got there without a boat. Verse 26, And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus did not answer their question. Did you notice that? Jesus wasn't about to tell the people who just wanted to take, make him king by force that, yes, I just walked across the lake. That wasn't his answer to them. Um, he doesn't want to tell them um, how he got there, but rather why they were there. That's a very interesting, quite a very interesting point here. And Jesus said it isn't because of the signs, he said, but it was because they had their fill of the loaves. What does that mean? Back in verses 11 and 12, it says that when they had ate the bread and the fish that Jesus had multiplied that they ate how much? As much as they wanted. They were totally, absolutely stuffed, and here Jesus reveals the motivation for their following him. It was because of the loaves that Jesus provided. They were following after Jesus because he provided free food, all you can eat. Now, I, I think many of us would say, "Amen!" After you know, after that, food is not easy to come by in the, in the days of Jesus. They were not handing out meal tickets when the Lord was was teaching his disciples to pray. Part of that prayer was they were to pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Now we take that and we allegorize it like crazy, and I can understand that, but it's really not an allegory. He's literally saying, pray to the Lord and ask him for today's food. Food was very difficult to come by, and so here Jesus is making an absolute miracle out of the food that they were about to eat. And one of the things that I think is is pretty uh, fascinating. One second, here my thing blew up. Done, whatever that means. Sorry, guys, my notes went away. Anyways, so Jesus is making so much food that they are following him for that very reason. That is why they are following. Him. That is their motivation. And they they saw that they wanted him to be king, not because of what Jesus wanted to give them, but because what they wanted out of him. And Jesus says, you aren't following because of the signs. You're seeking me for more bread. That's why you're you're coming after me. You want a king who's going to totally meet your everyday needs. And Jesus then tells them, verse 27, very important, do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Now, at first glance, it would seem that Jesus is saying, hey, you need to quit your jobs. Don't worry about food. I got you covered. And by the way, you do need to work for eternal life. So get on that. That seems like what it's saying, but Jesus is telling these crowds that what they were seeking after will never satisfy them. It will never satisfy them. They are laboring so hard. They are following after Jesus for all the wrong reasons. Jesus says, you're laboring for the wrong thing. Don't do that, but rather, labor for the food that doesn't perish that endures to eternal life. There's a different kind of food Jesus is pointing out there's a different kind of food here. Food that actually doesn't perish. Food that doesn't sustain physical life but rather gives eternal life. Jesus says the son of man, he's gonna give you this. I will give you this food. Back in chapter four when Jesus spoke to the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well, same conversation we had back in chapter four, verses 13, 14. Where Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be what? Thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become up in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so Jesus talks about a different kind of water. A different kind of water. Jesus is saying the same thing here. There is a different kind of bread Come to me and I will give you this bread and you will, that, that spiritual hunger, that spiritual thirst will be satisfied in me. I will give it to you. And the reason, Jesus says, that I can give you this eternal life is because God has set his seal upon the Son of Man. Now, he's just saying that God has given me the authority to give eternal life. We already read in John that Jesus, in him was life. And he is able to give that life to whomever he wishes. Obviously, it's the will of the Father doing whomever he wishes, right? Now, what does that mean? Is Jesus saying that we're trying, uh, when when Jesus says, uh, do not spend your time going after what perishes, but rather labor for the food that endures, is Jesus saying you have to labor for this? Is Jesus saying you have to, now, just like you go work for food, you have to work for eternal life, is that what he's saying? But he's saying there is a type of labor involved. And just as there is a different type of labor to go and buy your daily food, everybody, who has a job, right? There is a different type of labor that we must do in order to receive eternal life. There is a labor. Verse 28, and they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Great question. How do we get this food that doesn't spoil? What does God want us to do to get this bread? Which they think is still physical at this point. That's some kind of like wonder bread. What must we do? And let me say that what you believe about this answer is the difference between eternal life and eternal separation from God. These religious Jews were asking what works they must do in order to do the works of God, what does it require for us, Jesus, to get this free, unlimited bread? In all the religions of men answer this question the same. X amount of works equals eternal life. X amount of works equals nirvana. X amount of works equals salvation. X amount of works equals whatever it is. But that's not what Jesus says. Verse 29, and Jesus answered him, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Did you read that? Underline that. Put a star next to it. Set your heart upon it. Your eternity rests on that verse. This is the work that God requires of you. Just as you have to go out and labor day after day in order to put food in your fridge, and you guys know what that happens there, right? Here's the work that God requires of you to do. Believe, what does it say? Believe in him whom he sent. That is the work. There are two religions on earth, church. There are two. You throw them all into two categories The religion of human achievement or the religion of divine accomplishment? Those are them. The religion of human achievement is a man's ability to contribute to maybe God or something else in order to receive salvation. Salvation is just a plug-in word for whatever that religion's end is. But the religion of divine accomplishment is that salvation is the work of God and we trust in his finished work. That's it. Jesus said this is the work of God. Believe in him whom God sent. The way to receive eternal life, as you guys know this, is by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. There is no other way. There is no other religion. There is no other path. It is through Christ, faith in his finished work. His finished work to accomplish the law on our behalf. His righteousness, not mine. His sacrifice, not mine. His resurrection. Faith in him. To give you eternal life. And Jesus says, I will give you this bread. I'll give it to you. Here's the work you do. Believe me totally different from every other religion on earth. And let me say that we say it by grace through faith, but do we believe that? You know, it's interesting. These beautiful songs we're singing this morning. I was reading a quote online. It's pretty powerful. I shared it with someone. It just kind of been ringing with me. I think it was Martin Luther said it. He said, Christians don't tell lies, they sing them. Ouch. Ouch. We sit there and we sing these things but do we believe them to be true? Obviously some of them aren't true but I mean you know what I'm talking about. These deep hymns of the faith that we sing and these truths that are just resonate throughout the centuries because they're rooted in scripture they're rooted in truth they're rooted in the gospel and and yet you know we'll sing about his faithfulness we'll sing about his salvation we'll sing about Oh, it's by grace alone. And yet we go try to earn it, don't we? It's interesting. Perhaps you're following Jesus this morning so he can give you bread. That's the wrong kind of bread. Perhaps you're, you're seeking after him so he can heal you. Perhaps you're seeking after him so that um, you, know, you can get this water and this, and this money or whatever it might be. Jesus says those things, th- those are all things that are going to perish. Yes, by the way, church, God is absolutely concerned with you. He cares about you. He cares about your food. He cares about your body. He cares about these things more than you do, actually, believe it or not. He cares about your pain. But the first thing he's desiring to give us is the hunger that he desires and the the thirst that he desires for us to have that would be satisfied in him. It's a spiritual hunger and thirst. And so Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. Amen? Seek first the kingdom. And Jesus says, the works of God are to believe in the Son of God. Verse 30, and so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Are you reading the same book I'm reading? What work do you perform? Verse 31, Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They started quoting stuff on him, like quoting the scripture at him. Jesus had just said that God set a seal upon him, and they're going to challenge that, right? They, which is true. I mean, They just go for it, right? He said that he would give them this food that never perishes if they would just believe, and instead of believing, what do they do? They say, show us, show us. Show us another sign. We just saw you feed the 5,000, but you know what? I'm going to quote you some Old Testament, and they point back to Moses. Moses was the spiritual supergiant of the faith, right? They said, look what Moses did. He gave us manna from heaven for 40 years. You did it once. We're talking every day, Jesus. Get it going. That seems like the implication here. Now, when the Hebrews were delivered out of Egypt, God provided this food, this supernatural food, while they were in the wilderness. It's called manna, and I'm just doing a real quick recap of manna. It was a type of, they said it was like some kind of corn, something or other, it was white, it was on the ground every morning, and they could come out and they could gather it as they were in the wilderness. By the way, this came out because they were complaining. They're like, where's our steak? Like, where's all the good stuff we had in Egypt while we were slaves? So they're complaining, God answers them, He gives them manna, this miracle food out of heaven. It appeared on the ground every morning. They gathered it. And if they gathered too much, it would spoil. It was just enough for the day, the daily bread, right? So they go ahead and they get this stuff. And by the way, they could collect two days worth on Friday because the next day was the Sabbath and they weren't to do anything. So just cover my bases there. (laughs) But this manna was supernatural food, given to them by God, and the Jews were saying that Moses provided this, and it was a sign of God's seal upon him, right? Man, God, Moses did this work, and, if, and I really don't get this because they had seen what Jesus had just done. They had just seen the multiplying of their bread. They had seen the healings, they would seen the exorcisms, they would seen everything, these, gra- these crowds are following the Lord, And yet, they still were hard hearted because they truly were interested not in the spiritual food that Jesus had to offer. They wanted the physical food. Give us our daily bread and nothing else. Be our king. We want you to be a bakery. That's what they wanted. And I find it so interesting that that is what a lot of Christianity offers today that Jesus is your bakery, Jesus is your ATM. Jesus is here to offer you all these things. And there's a rude awakening when he doesn't. And in his grace he takes care of us. So thank, you know, praise him for his his grace and how kind he is. But that's not the gospel. That food will perish. They wanted that earthly food and the signs. And so they said, Moses provided manna 40 years every day. What about you, Lord? And so Jesus has to correct them. Verse 32. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. But who? My father gives you the true bread from heaven. He corrects them, and then he points to something else. When Jesus says truly, truly, it means listen up. Listen up. First, Jesus says the bread wasn't from Moses. It was from God. God sustained the lives of your ancestors supernaturally in the wilderness. God did that. And secondly, Jesus says, by the way, the manna wasn't true bread. Did you catch that? The manna wasn't true bread. In other, words, verse, uh, in other words, so Jesus is saying that manna, although it wasn't from heaven, it wasn't, although it was from heaven, it wasn't true bread. In other words, he's saying that it's, a, it's foreshadowing. It's pointing to something else. It's a shadow of a reality. And I'm pulling this from a lot of other scriptures that we'll explain next week. But this is, this is what Jesus is leading to. It was pointing to another bread. Verse 33. For the bread of God is what? It was He. The bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The manna that God provided in Moses' day sustained them physically. But Jesus says, in stark contrast, the true bread, the bread of God, is a person. It's a person. And he comes down from heaven and he gives life to the world. That's what's going on. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Do you think they got it at that point? Whatever you're talking about, if it's like what we just had, I want more of it. Supernatural bread, give us it. And so Jesus is understanding that they want this unending bread supply and they are totally missing the point. So Jesus has to clarify of what this bread, this spiritual bread that comes down from heaven is. Verse 35, what does it say? Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life and whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. It could not be more clear. Jesus is is eternal life. Jesus is eternal life and whoever comes to him shall not hunger and whoever believes in him will never thirst. Just as these people who ate all the bread they could eat in the feeding of 5,000 and were totally stuffed, so Jesus will satisfy the soul of him who comes to him and believes. That's the point. And Jesus lays out here the responsibility of man in salvation. And this is very important. What are the two things that he requires of us in salvation? Whoever does what? Comes and believes. Both of those are an act of faith. Turning to him and believing upon him. That's what God requires of man. That's man's part of salvation. Both are acts of faith turning towards Jesus and believing upon him. But the problem is verse 36. What do we see? But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. They saw the son of God. They saw everything he was doing. But they did not believe. They kept asking for signs. Back in John 3, John declared in verse 19, and this is the judgment, that light is coming to the world. And people loved the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. They were following, but it was to meet their own desires. They followed Jesus for the miracles, for the healing, and now for the bread, but not for eternal life. And here was the light of the world, church, the Son of God, right in front of them, doing all these things. He says, you've seen me, but you do not believe By the way, this did not take Jesus by surprise. We're going to read later in verse 65 or somewhere around there. He, he says, he knew who would believe from the beginning. He knew that Judas would betray him. He knew that his disciples would walk away and who would stay. He knew these things. He knew who would, uh, who would be rejected. But Jesus also knew His Father's sovereign plan that there would be those who would come to Him, believe, and be saved. Verse 37. Right after saying, you guys do not believe, He says this in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. As these people, they flat out reject Jesus. In unbelief, Jesus turns around and says to him, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And Jesus is going to just lean heavily on the sovereignty of God. And I think it's so important that we just lean into it too. Because there's a balance in Scripture, and we know this. But right now, Jesus leans into this, and he says, listen. And this is the implication of that statement. Jesus says to these people that they were not given to Jesus by the Father because they did not come into and they did not believe. And I know there's a big discussion about that. Well, did did God choose because they didn't believe? I don't know. Sorry. Above my pay grade. I really don't. I don't want to dismiss how important this is. But let's just Check this out, the Bible is clear over and over and over again that God is totally sovereign in his act of salvation. You cannot get around it. We build doctrines on less. It's amazing. That he is totally sovereign in his act of salvation. The Father gives them to the Son, and they come to the Son. Salvation is not man's idea. It is not your idea. It is not my idea. It just is so that you being born was not your idea. Salvation is not man's idea. It is God's. It has been so before the world was created. And I've wrestled with that for years, and I've just come to trust it because it teaches it. God is totally sovereign. And this is not an isolated verse, verse 37. Skip down to verse 44 in John 6. Jesus says, no one can come unless the Father who sent me draws him. What do you do with that one? And again, verse 64 and 65, where Jesus repeats it. He says, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who, who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Jesus knew who would believe and who didn't from the beginning, 65, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come unless it is granted to him by the Father. No one can come unless it is what? Granted to him by the Father. If the Father doesn't grant it, you're not coming, right? Right? Okay, read the verse there, okay? I just want to, <laughs> Matthew twenty-two fourteen. 14 For many are called, but few are chosen. A whole parable about this thing, and this guy decides to crash this party, and he gets thrown out. Read the parable: Many are called, few are chosen. Mark 13:20. And if the Lord had not cut the days, uh, the short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom He chose. He shortened the days, and obviously there's a big discussion there, but the elect are chosen. Acts 13, 48, you might want to write this one down. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. God appointed them to eternal life, and what happened? They believed. Now, I don't know about you, but this just makes me wonder about God. Amen? And I think we're supposed to wonder about God. And I think we're supposed to seek him and go, Lord, what is this about you? And then we find all the other truths. Romans 8. I'm just going to keep going for a minute. 8, 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, well, who are those? Well, all things work together for good for those who are called according to what? His purposes. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he also called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Boy, I, did, I had some of that, didn't I? Didn't, wasn't I a part of that? And don't forget verse 31. The, and here's Paul's response to that. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? In other words, if God did all these things, what do we have to worry about? Right? Salvation is a work of God. Don't need to worry. How about Ephesians 1, 3 through 6? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us, past tense, in him when before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to what? The purpose of whose will? his will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has blessed us in the beloved and he just keeps on going on, on and on and on and on Ephesians chapter 2 flip to the next chapter and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air in the spirit that is now in the sons of work work of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and mind and were by nature children of wrath and like the rest of mankind, right? But God being rich in mercy because of what? The great love with which he loved us. There's his motivation. Even when we were what? Dead in trespasses and sins. He did what? He made us alive together with Christ. Well how did that happen? By grace you have been saved. And raised up with him and seed with him in Christ in heavenly places, right? So why? So that, and I just want to keep reading this because it's awesome. So that in the coming ages, he might show his immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Again, he saved you. And for what purpose? So that in the coming ages, he's going to keep lavishing his grace upon us. It just doesn't end. Why? Because it's his will. Because he wanted it. He planned it. He chose you for that. He called you to it, to be with him. And he goes on. For by grace you have been saved, verse 8, and this is what? Not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared when? Beforehand, so that we should walk in them. Am I painting a picture? So dead people don't come to life on their own. God made us alive when we were dead. Salvation is a gift, and faith is a gift to believe. It's all a gift, it's Him. These are great things, and it gets better. John 17, we'll get there eventually, maybe. Verse one and two. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Wow, the father gives people out of the world to the son to save. Again, verse six. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, And you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me when before the foundations of the earth. Jesus repeats uh, those the Father gives him, They are those who believe and keep his word. And now going back to John chapter 6, verse 37, 38, Jesus says to those who would not come and would not believe, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to the will of him who sent me. Now, here's the thing. We don't know we don't have that information. You guys might think I have a red phone to God and I'm like, oh yeah, this person is chosen, elect, and saved. We don't. We're, we're just, that is none of our business. We don't know any of that. God is totally sovereign in salvation and yet we are responsible to believe and this is the tension in scripture. This is the tension of scripture over and over and over and over again, it says believe, 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 believe. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, yeah, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son to the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the son of God. Instead, he's patient with you, not one. Yeah, so you just believe over and over and over. The call is to believe. Peter, writing in 2 Peter 3.9 about the Lord's return, he's saying, hey, listen, some people are mocking this because it's so slow. What does it say? The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you, wishing that what? doesn't want anybody to perish. Now there's a paradox for you. Do I understand that? no. But I do know that God doesn't want anyone to perish and yet he knows who will believe, he chooses those who will believe, all that type of stuff. I am not God. So there is something about God that I do not understand. Do you know that? And guess what? I am absolutely okay with that. I am absolutely okay with that because what he does tell me to understand, man, I've got my hands full. Hey, Matt, believe upon Jesus and follow me today. Oh, man. All right, let's go. I don't want to oversimplify this, and by the way, there is a place for deep conversation about these things, and I think it's, it's good and healthy to go through these things, as long as we, I think, sense the heart of God, that He desires that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. So on the one hand, God chooses, and yet we're responsible to choose Him. God desires that today you believe. Do you believe? And that's what it comes down to. Jesus came to fulfill the will of God and to draw all those who believed to himself. Verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose how many? Nothing of whom? All that he has given me. But do what? Raise it up on the last day, for this is the will of my Father that everyone And here's the broad, wide net of the heart of God. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. Our sister Hallie went to be with the Lord. We had a memorial yesterday, the day before. Her body was in a casket next to a hole in the ground, and it was going in. I don't mean to be crass about that, but that is not the end. That's not it. Jesus is going to speak and that body will be transformed or be rematerialized or whatever he does as the creator on that day. And Halle whose spirit is with the Lord will be reunited with Halle 2.0. And forever we will be with together in the air. And this is what Jesus says, "I will raise them up." When Jesus says I'm giving you life, we think life is, well, talking about? I'm giving you eternal life. Your spirit will never die. You will be with God for eternity. He will give you new body. You will be with him in rule and reign. And who knows what he has? All I know is that in the ages to come, grace. Why? Because it is his goodwill. That's his plan. Jesus says, whoever believes should have eternal life, and I will raise up on the last day. Jesus sent I mean, God sent Jesus to us that God would lose nothing, would lose none. Now, really quickly, a few weeks ago, I asked you to underline some verses, remember some verses. Do you remember when Jesus Jesus did the miracle of the bread? The first was like verse four or something, when it says what time of year it was. It was the Passover. We'll come back to that. But the second was, why did why was John so emphatic to record that Jesus would lose none? That he said, "Gather up all the pieces, the leftovers." Are we concerned with Jesus is concerned with leftovers? Do you think that was the point? He just like he likes a good snack. No, there's a bigger picture of that miracle, of the feeding of the five thousand. He says that none would be lost. Gather all the pieces into the basket, you twelve, that none would be lost. And here, Jesus uses that same phraseology, the Father sent me, that nothing may be lost. And as I mentioned before, the feeding of the 5,000, it does have that, it's a bigger picture than the boy sharing his meal. It's a bigger picture than the disciples' inability to materialize what was needed for those people. There's a bigger picture that Jesus was pointing out with all this. It was about bread, bread. But it wasn't about bakery bread. It was about true bread. The picture of the feeding of 5,000 is this. That Jesus is the true bread sent from heaven that quenches to the uttermost the hunger and the thirst of anyone who would come to him and believe. And he was broken, that all who had come to him would believe would receive him, his life. The bread was a picture of his life being broken and passed out. And those people gorged themselves on him and were satisfied to the full. And the disciples, they distributed him through the word that they preached down through the ages, their word, we're feasting on that same bread right now, passed out to us, that we too would gorge ourselves on him and our spirits would be filled with him. We would be satisfied and overflowing with him. It's a person, church. It is the son of God who broke himself, gave himself to the disciples and they spread him out. And this is why Jesus said, listen, this is something you're not gonna be able to buy. This is something you're not gonna be able to do. It's something I'm gonna put into your hands and you're just gonna pass me out. And you're gonna gather them into the baskets that I would lose none. That's the picture. And on the last day, I will raise them up. You know, when we take communion, it's that picture. It's not only him being broken, but we take our life from him. And that's what Jesus is talking about in chapter six. And he's gonna continue to it and people are going to leave him over it. They're gonna reject him because they they want bread, but he's giving life. All those who come to Jesus and believe will never thirst again. The bread endures, it satisfies. And God is actively drawing To this day, by his Holy Spirit, through the preaching of his word, people to come to his son and their souls to be satisfied. And listen, you might be thinking, oh, well, Pastor Matt, pass out that bread. And Jesus turns around and goes, church, you're the light of the world. That's your job. I've broken myself and I've given myself to you. Now take that and give it away and expect that there are gonna be people who don't want the bread. But also know that God has a plan. There are how many thousands in the land that have not you know, bent their knee to Baal? We look out and we go, oh no one wants to receive Jesus. Like, let God worry about all that. Trust God with salvation. Be faithful as a disciple just to take Jesus and pass him out to the world as you yourself have feasted on him, amen? It's so sweet, it's so sweet, it's so good to be in his kingdom, it's so good to be in his church, his eternal church, where he has passed himself out to us and and we are one with him, like that picture of communion. His body is our life. We are one with Christ. If you continue to read this and you read John 17, just for the joy of it this week, you're going to see this love that Jesus had for the Father and that love that he desired to give by the greatest way you could do it, by giving himself to each of you. If you would just come to him and feast on him, he's yours. And that life sustains, it overflows the issues of this life. It surpasses pain, it surpasses hunger, it surpasses thirst, it surpasses all the things that are happening in our lives and it rolls on into eternity and will never end. The glorious grace of being in Christ. And what a joy it is we have to share that with each other and with him and the world that surrounds us. So let's end there. Father, thank you that from eternity past, Lord, in your divine plan, you decided to send your son, and draw all those who would believe to him. And Father, I do admit, I, I don't have this all figured out. I don't understand. There's deep questions I have about you and your nature, and some things make me unsettled, Lord, and what else can I do? I'm a I'm mortal, Lord, and you are the eternal God. But what I do see is not only a just God, I see a God of love who desires that we would have his life. And so, Lord, thank you for giving your life, for sending your life to earth, for breaking that life and distributing that life. And so, Lord, we do come to you. Have mercy upon us. We don't deserve this, but, Lord, we're thankful for your Son who died for our sins. And who imputed his righteousness on our account. And who gave us his eternal life. And what we just read is that if we believe in that, if we are born again, you decided to give us that. How sweet that is, Lord. And if you began it, you're going to finish it. Lord, I pray that the hearts in this room, would rest fully upon you. And that that faith wouldn't turn into license to sin, Lord, uh, or that p- get precious gift wouldn't lead us to kind of just lax on things, but it, it would cause us to drive into you even more in worship and praise and in our lives and just say thank you. So bless our church today. Bless the gathering of your people who've called upon your name, who believe. And may we go out this week, Lord, in in your name, in your grace, and spread out the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that people would partake of you, receive you, know you, and be brought in to your family, Lord, and that we would grow together in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Until that day, in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.